Well, good morning. It really is good to be with you here today. Uh, for those listening on uh, online to our podcast as well, uh, welcome you. Um, we are wrapping up. There we go. There we go. Uh, we are wrapping up our, our six-week series on Nehemiah. Next week uh, is, a, is a do not miss. This is invite your brother, invite your friend. Um, you will become... Um, you will become the crowd that Jesus spoke to in the Sermon on the Mount. So I, I would just encourage you to be here. And then the following week is, is an unpacking of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you can do that in like 30 minutes on a Sunday, but we're going to, Matthew is going to truly attempt that on the 24th as best as that he can um, with the wisdom of God. But, uh, um, but I, I would really strongly encourage you for this two-week series to, to, ma- to make it a point to get here. Um, because the Sermon on the Mount is one of those sermons and one of those texts that really bring our faith to the, to the floor and puts the rubber to the road and really helps us understand how to uh, take our faith in Jesus Christ and apply it to our life uh, with our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors and our enemies and those that are persecuting us. But um, with that, we are still um, wrapping up our six-week series on Nehemiah today. And... Um, if you wouldn't mind, please open up to uh, chapter 5 of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Um, as you can tell, by no means have we even approached the end of the book of Nehemiah in this six-week series. In fact, we are only about to reach chapters 5, 6, and 7 today. Um, there are 13 chapters and, and the time span that we are, are actually have been talking about in the last six weeks is about a year. Um, so those first five to s- or first seven chapters have only been a year uh, of time frame. And uh, with Nehemiah, we last left him in the face of opposition. Um, he had external opposition that was coming against what he and the Israelite people were trying to do. They were trying to rebuild the city walls. And that's been the whole plight of the Israelite people. They've been left vulnerable to those that were around them, because for 150 years or so, the walls have been down. The gates have been down, leaving them vulnerable and susceptible to any and all enemies. And Nehemiah, from the land of Susa, Persia, who was an Israelite in captivity, since the call to go home to his homeland, to the land of his ancestors, to help his people. And so in this In this plight, in his call, in his mission, he took the risk, he embraced the risk, and we left him in the face of external opposition. And we learned a little bit about how Nehemiah handled that external opposition and the discouragement amongst the people that was spreading amongst his people. Folks, we're called to lift the heads of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to encourage them to speak encouragement into their life as best that we know how. For some, it's just putting your arm around them saying, I love you. For others, it's praying over them. It's breathing scripture into their life. We need that. You need that. And the prayerful Nehemiah stepped in. And so we left him where he identified and fortified the weak places on the wall. Those that were still rubble. That enabled the enemy to ambush. So he identified them and fortified them. He split the people. He split the workers into workers and guards. Gave them 
plow or gave them swords and spears and bows and put them on the wall. And he said, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. To do the work, we need to have people that come behind us and pray over us, to guard us. Folks, I can tell you this, almost every Sunday night, there are anywhere between 10 to 15 people that lay themselves down before the Lord for you and your family. They pray for you by name. They pray for your families. They pray for your situations. They pray for your heart, your spiritual health, your health and your well-being. They pray for your growth in Christ. They pray for salvation. Folks, for us as a church, it may not look like holding bows and spears and shields and armor, but it really is prostrating themselves before the Lord for you. And I would ask and I would challenge every one of us, because one of our values is prayer, is to do the same. Because I know many of you are doing the work. You're doing the work of salt and light and yeast in our community. And man, we need you to pray for us while we pray for you. And so Nehemiah and the people, he changed the method in order to get the mission done. However, as you and I know, sometimes worse gets worse. You ever have that in your life? For instance, uh, Anybody ever do a DIY project and you start ripping out the drywall or you pick up the floor and you realize, oh, the weekend project has turned into a month-long project, right? For Nehemiah, this is not a weekend renovation job by any means. But for Nehemiah, he comes to understand that the situation, the desperate time, got even more desperate and got even Worse, worse-er, if that's incorrect English, I give that a thumbs up. It got worse. How many of you have asked, can it get any worse than it is right now? Uh-huh. Yeah. It got worse. See, when Nehemiah was in Persia, and he heard the word of the trouble and the disgrace of the Israelite people, he can only speculate in his mind's eye what was going on with the Israelite people back home. He couldn't see it with his own two eyes. But when he arrived to Jerusalem, in chapter 2, he took time to be with the people and connect with the people. He took about three days to pause. And he took his midnight ride to gauge the magnitude of the project. But even then, Nehemiah was just some guy that arrived with a lot of resources from a land way far away. Folks, trust takes time, does it not? Trust takes time. Whether it's a leader with a group of people, whether it's with you and 
meeting new people in relationships. Trust takes time. And as Nehemiah embraced the risk and went to task, cast the vision, got people to the mission, he started to realize some things about the people. And worse got worse. So if you wouldn't mind, open up to chapter 5. And let's read how worse got worse. And find that out. Chapter 5. Verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 13, if you would mind follow. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we, mortgage, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Listen to what Nehemiah says. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Remember, God is always about redemption. That's pretty good. Now, you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. When you're wrong and you know you're wrong, you're wrong. And you're called out. You have nothing to say. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending to peop the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury that you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, and new wine, and oil. Notice the response. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. It takes time for trust. But when trust is gained, people follow it. People follow through. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe, which seems really weird, but this is what they did in the ancient culture 
shook the folds out of my robe and said in this way, May God shake out his house and possessions, every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. That's right. That's scripture right there, man. That's a good deal. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. Praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer before we go forward. Father, we thank you for the word of God, even if we may not completely understand it. And that's okay. I don't understand it all myself. We're all learners here at the feet of God. God, may we not presume to know everything, but may we approach you with humility. And Lord God, may you speak into us the truth, the biblical principles that you have, those truths about you, And those truths about us and people. And Father, we ask that this morning, that whatever you speak to our hearts and our lives, that we not only write it down, we not only keep it, but we apply it to our life. Because it makes no sense to come in and listen if we don't do anything with it. God, may we be a people who do what you say it's in your name that we pray amen worse got worse folks worse got really bad the band-aid came off and nehemiah began to understand what was going on with the israelite people the walls being down started to cause implosion with the people whether they were in jerusalem or not at this point in time we understand that there weren't a whole lot of people living in Jerusalem at the time. They had left the city for the most part. Some were living by the walls. But what was happening with the people caused some issue. In the first five chapters as a reader, I would have liked to have known that there was a famine going on, but Nehemiah doesn't mention a famine at all until chapter 5. The people are the point, at the point of starving. And you know as well as I do that when you're hungry, you're going to do whatever you can do to get your food, even become a little hangry. Nazarenes are known for being hangry, right? Especially when the pastor speaks well past the time he's supposed to be done, right? Food's in the oven. It's going to burn. Shut up, pastor. It's time to go. I'm hangry. But we have a group of people that are in famine. And what they start doing is they start mortgaging their property. Whatever property they have in order that they may feed their kids and their own stomachs. I've been watching a documentary. It's a two-parter. Uh, Ken Burns' documentary on the Dust Bowl. I thought I knew what happened in the Dust Bowl in the 30s. But I learned differently. The Dust Bowl that occurred in the 1930s. And as I was reading this, I started to picture these people from the 1930s in the, in the panhandle of the Midwest, of Oklahoma. Boys, northern Texas. How their property was just blowing away. They would plant seed and it would just blow away. 
For years, there were drought and there was famine. They were mortgaging their own properties in order to have food with the hope that things would change, that the rains would come. But year after year after year after year, it was just dust. People began to move to California. And even in California, they had a name for those folks that came over from Oklahoma and Texas, Nebraska, the plains in the Midwest. They were called Okies. And those Okies were not welcomed. They were not welcome at all. In fact, they were taken advantage of. They were so taken advantage of by the farmers in California. Farmers taking advantage of farmers. The Israelites were taking advantage of Israelites. The Israelites were mortgaging their properties, and in fact they were actually putting their sons and daughters into servanthood so that the sons and daughters could get fed and the families could also get fed while the sons and daughters are in servanthood, in slavery. Israelites selling Israelites to Israelites. God's people were not loving God's people. They were not treating God's people as they should be. Very similar to that situation in the 30s. The dirty 30s. And what was happening? Leadership. Leadership was standing idly by and allowing this all to take place. And in fact, leadership was putting burden on the people. And though King Artaxerxes, as we've read in this book, gave favor to Nehemiah, because Nehemiah asked for God's favor and for favor of King Artaxerxes, although King gave favor to Nehemiah with resources, the king was still a king. Kings never are not kings, right? And what do kings do? They tax people. They tax everyone under their empire. And so, not only is the king burdening them with taxes, so is everyone else burdening everyone else. And when you wanted to to get money, if you were an Israelite that had money, what you did was you gave the money, but you charged an inordinate amount of money of interest. They were credit card companies before they were credit card companies. But they hiked the interest rate so high that it burdened the people. Not only did Nehemiah and those folks trying to build the wall have pressure from the outside, but it got worse because there was pressure from the inside. God's people were not treating God's people like God expected God's people to treat God's people. And in fact, worse got even worse. There was no such thing as public worship any longer for the folks. Corporate worship hadn't taken place in a long time. The Sabbath was no longer observed. And in fact, 
pagan worship began to seep its way into the people. God's place was removed. He was out of his rightful place. Worse got worse, which got worse. Desperate times even got more desperate. Because you know as well as I do that the mission implodes when there's division. Does it not? Jesus himself said every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. He said, and every city or household divided against itself cannot stand. Listen to his words. Kingdom, city, household. He goes right straight to it, folks, where you live. If there is division, it won't stand. Young parents who are raising your little ones, have you yet had your kid split you yet? Where they know which parent to ask for what they want, I'll go to daddy, because daddy, I got him wrapped around my finger. I'll ask him first, because I know mom's not going to say yes. But I'm going to ask dad, because dad will say yes. Then I'll go ask mom, and then I'll, I'll say, but daddy said I could. A house divided, right? Kids know how to divide a house, so does the enemy. Here we have a house divided. We have a kingdom divided. And Nehemiah understands that the mission that God has called us to will implode if there is division in the house. If there's division among the people. No one will get the work done. The walls will remain rubble. And people will remain in the conditions that they are. I appreciate what he says. I was very angry. And I pondered it. Folks, in our world today, it's very easy. Very easy. And we are quick to say what we think. Social media is the the quickest way. Something happens... I post, I tweet, I Instagram it, my own opinion. Which fuels the fire, doesn't it? It doesn't resolve anything. We just express it. Nehemiah held his tongue for a moment. And he thought about what to do. And who did he go to first? Who did he go to first? Who did he go to first? Now, this is not rhetorical. I'm, I'm asking you. Participation. You need, you need to get your, your gold star for the day. No. Which people? The nobles and officials. Nehemiah goes straight to the nobles and officials. Why? Because whether we like it or not, leadership matters. Leadership matters. 
And if leadership fails, then the people will be lost. But when leadership gets better, everyone gets better. When the parent parental unit gets better, the family gets better. When you get better, the people that are close to you will get better. He calls out leadership because they are the ones that have the power that have been allowing this stuff to go on. He calls them out. But how do we apply this? Because many of us go, well, I'm not a leader. I'm, I'm not a leader. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount, which you'll hear next week. When you judge, that same measure will be judged to you. He said, why are you trying to remove the dust, the speck from some, someone's eye when you have a massive plank in your own eye? Remove the plank from your own eye, then deal with the dust in your friend's eye. In other words, self-leadership matters. You got to lead you first. We got to lead ourselves first. Your heart is important. Your mind is important. You are important. Your relationship with God is important. Self-leadership matters. And Nehemiah addressed the issue. He addressed the issue with the nobles because they weren't leading themselves and they weren't leading their people. Folks, it's always the right time to do the right and godly thing. Always the right time. It's never too late for you and I to do the right and godly thing. It's never too late. You may be in the hearing of my voice and say, oh, you don't know. It's never too late to do the right and godly thing. And the time is now. But I have to, I have to clarify something. What the world may deem the right thing may not necessarily be the right thing to God. According to the world, the right thing may not always be the godly thing. According to God. But the godly thing will always be the right thing. Let me repeat that. I think you should take your phones out and snap that. According to the world, the right thing may not always be the godly thing. According to God. But the godly thing will always, always be the right thing to do. I think we get caught in this. We get caught in this as, as Christians, as believers and followers and disciples of Christ, because we get discipled by the world sometimes. And the world may say, this is the right thing to do. But God's going, no, 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 no. That's not even right and that's not even godly. And so, 
Nehemiah steps up and does the right and godly thing and calls it for what it is, wrong, sin. You're taking advantage of each other. You're taking advantage of one another just like the neighbors want to do. Just like your ancient Near Eastern neighbors. And you know what? We've got a task to do and it's not going to get done until God's people treat God's people better. Folks, we don't get better until we start treating each other better. The job won't get done. The mission will just implode. And so, it's time to do the right thing. And so, Jesus, in his last moments, I kind of referenced that a little bit. He said this, As I have loved you, so you love one another. This is how people will know that you're mine, that you're my disciple, the way you love one another. This is not a Valentine's Day sermon. I don't do that kind of stuff. But it kind of fits there, right? As you love one another, people are going to know you're mine. When God's people treat each other as God expects God's people to treat each other, it becomes attractive. People get curious about that. They go, man, I want that. And when God's people love God's people, it naturally bleeds over to loving other people that are not a part of the kingdom of God and that are not believers in Jesus Christ. It bleeds, naturally just overflows. It's an outflow of the way we're created to be. Why? Because we are designed with dignity by our Creator. And what the Israelites have forgotten is that they are made in the image of God. And because of that, they are valued. They have dignity. Just because they were born. Just because they were created. Just because they were formed in the womb by the hands of God. The Israelite people forgot that. I think sometimes the church forgets that. We argue about this or that, the way this sign's supposed to look, or the way the, the pew feels, or whatever. I don't know, I'm just making stuff up off the top of my head. And we miss the point. We miss the mission. The division begins to implode, and the mission gets forgotten. Folks, as believers in Christ, we cannot forget why we exist. And so, with all that said, it's really interesting. Chapter 6, verse 15. Nehemiah unloads, calls it out, rectifies it. The people say, yeah, we're going to give back our property We're going to give back the money. 
We're going to bring back the sons and daughters to their families. We're going to right the wrong. We're going to do that because it, it's always the right time to do the right and godly thing. The officials started it. Self-leadership and it trickled on down. And what happens? Chapter 6, it just seems to be popping out of nowhere. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Rome was not built in a day, but I'm sure it wasn't built in 52 days. The wall around Jerusalem was rebuilt in 52 days. That's surprising to me. But it's also not surprising to me. Why? Because when people come together and they get unified under the mission, the work gets done. Right? When the church is united, when the body of Christ, the local body of Christ, is united, unified in mission and in spirit, Things get done. People get saved. Does this mean that we're not going to disagree? No. Does this mean that we're all going to vote for the same party? Uh Uh-uh. But what it does mean is those things in which we disagree on are checked at the door when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're all unified under the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all unified under the blood that was shed by Him. We're all unified by that transformative gospel. The power. Jesus Christ crucified, dead and buried, raised again and coming back. We are unified by that. We're unified in faith. We are one body, one faith. Under one baptism, one spirit doesn't mean we're not going to disagree. Folks, I feel like in the past, we've lost it. Everybody had to be cookie cutter. You've got you to be cookie cutter. Cookie cutter Christians. God doesn't expect that. Scripture doesn't expect that. We all have different personalities, different understandings of those things around us, but we're unified in the doctrinal beliefs. We're unified in the Scripture. We're unified by the Spirit. We become empowered when we're unified. We become almost an unstoppable when we're unified. Read the book of Acts, span of 30 years from chapter 1 to the end of the chapter, or to the end of the book. Man, the early church was unstoppable because they were unified. And so in 52 days, the wall was completed. They didn't have the luxury to sit around. Everybody had to put their back to work. We don't have that luxury anymore. We don't have the luxury to sit down and not do. And so this, this little area right there, that's one portion of the wall that Nehemiah, and the Israelite people put their backs to. I know it doesn't look like a wall now because it just looks like a nice little walkway. 
But over the centuries, the, the earth came around it. But this, this is a portion of the wall that Nehemiah and his people completed around Israel. Archaeologists have uncovered, and you can go physically touch that wall that was built around Israel, around Jerusalem, by Nehemiah and the Israelites in 444 BCE. The job was done. It was completed. Folks, when God's people love one another, the mission for which the church is commi- uh, was born and commissioned becomes fruitful. It comes into completion. Folks, we are called to be faithful, but faithfulness has to, is fruitfulness. We come together when we love one another. Watch out. Things happen. Things happen. But I want you to take note of this. Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 15. We go from the month of Kislev to the month of Nisan to the month of Elul. That's almost a year span. From the month of November, December to March, April to the month of Elul, which is October. That took a long time to materialize. Though the wall was built in 52 days, by all those people that were listed in chapter 3, and probably many, many more, from the cast of the vision back in Susa, in Persia, all the way to that moment when the wall was completed and Nehemiah could document in his little journal, on this day, this month, the wall was completed in 52 days. It literally took almost a full year for that to materialize. Folks, missions come to fruition over time, not overnight. we got to be diligent to see it through. Breakthroughs do not happen overnight. They are a result of the daily grind. Breakthroughs happen with the daily grind. Day in and day out refocusing ourselves on what God has called us to, to the task of His redemptive work. And so, as we wrap up, I want to remind us of a few things. Because I firmly believe that God has really been speaking to some of us. The Christian life is a call to risk. You've heard me say that and repeat that and repeat that. You're probably sick of me saying that. But guess what? Once you get sick of me saying that, I know that you've heard it. The Christian life is a call to risk. It's not a call to waste. We are to be the biggest risk takers on the face of the earth. You. You are. And when I look into your eyes, I do see risk takers. I've heard some of your stories. I've actually watched you take risks. Not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it, but something does. And over the course of 2019, it is your challenge to find out what it is and take that risk. For some of you, I know God has been talking to you 
about himself and receiving Jesus Christ in your life. And you're just putting your toe in the pool. Just checking it out. Are the waters, are the waters good enough for me to jump in? I can tell you what. Take the risk and jump in head first. Heart first. God's got it. And he's going to show you himself. He's going to empower you. And you are going to do amazing things. But I want to leave us with this. Jossie Chaco says this. If your vision is small, your risk will be as well. And your reward will match. When you risk small, the reward is small. When you risk big, the reward is big. And let me tell you, God's got something huge, man. If you're not willing to die for your vision, it's not worth living for. And if you're not willing to live for your vision, it's not worth dying for. Jesus Christ lived and died for the vision. He lived and died for the mission. He lived and died for you. And He didn't stay dead. He rose. He did the impossible. That which only God can do. So we take that lesson from Him. We take the lesson from Jesus Christ. The ultimate risk taker. The one who lived for the mission and the vision. The one who died for the mission and the vision. And we step into that. And we say, God, what do you got for me? Because I want to know. I'm done sitting around. I'm done with it. Even with all my questions and all my doubts, I'm going all in because I'm going to trust you in this. I've seen other people take the risks and I've seen the reward happen in their life. I've seen the joy. I've seen the peace. I've seen the grace and the mercy. I've seen them empowered. I've seen them equipped. They may seem inadequate, and they are, but by your Spirit, we're all empowered. I've seen it happen. Folks, our corner of the world needs you and I to step in and give them hope. Your corner of the world, your school, your classmates, your neighbors, your family, your kids, your apartment complexes, your workplace. They need hope. And the local church, you, are that hope. You're the one to bring them that hope. So will you take that risk and allow God to do what He's going to do? Please stand. Do you mind just bowing your heads for a second? I'm going to wrap up in about three or four minutes. Bow your heads and, and close your eyes and just play softly, Sandy, if you wouldn't mind. If through this series you know that God has been speaking to you about taking some type of risk for His redemptive work, 
then I'm going to ask that you please just raise your hand and keep it up. Okay, okay. And if you know that God's been speaking to you about himself, about taking the plunge of making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior for the first time in your entire life, or rededicating yourself to Him, would you please raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yes. If you just raised your hand, to take that plunge, you say, yeah, God's been talking to my heart about Him and about salvation and receiving Jesus into my life rededicating my life to Him, making Him not just Savior, not just my, my get-out-of-fire free card, but changing your eternity and your life and making Him Lord. I'm going to ask that, that you just simply um, repeat after me in this prayer. There's nothing magical about the prayer. It really is just asking God to, to do what He said He would do. Jesus, I need you. I believe that you are the Son of God. That you came from heaven. That you walked this earth. That you chose the cross. That you sacrificed yourself for the forgiveness of my sins that you died that you were buried and that on the third day you rose from the dead that you are Lord will you forgive me of my sins and will you enter my life and my heart And may you be Lord of me, my household, my family, and all aspects of my life. Because it's no longer mine. It's yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that this morning, and you meant that please don't leave please don't leave without talking with me I want to know that Heavenly Father I thank you for this group of people may they experience you this week in a fresh and new way will you come in and comfort them in the places they need that comfort Will you give them peace where they, when they need that peace? But most importantly, I ask for your presence in their life. And for those that you've been speaking to about taking risks, and they raise their hand, you know who they are. Lord, help them step out. Begin that journey. And may you prove yourself faithful to you and to them.
We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we ask these things today. Amen. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And will you please, please, please love your neighbor as yourself. Be love people, loving people to Jesus. Have a good day.